Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 183, First Contact. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we walk a mile on the terminuses of other beings, some very similar to us, some somewhat different, some a combination of the two, watching an episode of Star Trek for messages, morals, and meanings, and figuring out whether what was said in production is worth hearing today. This week, first contact. Oh, easily one of the 10 or 11 best Star Trek movies so far. Well, for first uh yeah yeah okay, but uh but but second this is not that first contact oh uh yeah okay you're <laughs> referencing a movie that may or may not ever happen mm. we don't know because yeah. we haven't gotten there uh we're gotten, talking wait about wait the, i'm sorry gotten yeah, where to i don't know yeah exactly yeah and uh, <laughs> but what we're doing is we're talking about the episode of next gen where Riker is a stranger in a strange land, making first contact, hence mm. the title, with a planet that might not be ready. In a moment, I'll do trivia, but first... But first! I'll let people know how to get in touch with us. <laughs> and then while you're doing trivia, I'm going to watch this episode, because, uh, did I mention? Yeah. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. You can give us a call, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and weird little surprises, is um, missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Uh, thank you, buddy. Yeah, buddy. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> and if you think we're just, like, being mean and, like, not even saying the guy's name, the guy's name is Buddy. It is. Yeah, and and seriously, thank you. <laughs> All right, trivia for yeah. first contact. I'm this so ep- sad that there's, like, nobody to talk about in this episode. Yeah, I know. If only, yeah. <laughs> if only. You, you can see where they saved the budget from last week. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, seriously. This week. It yeah. was like Circus of the Stars watching this episode. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm leading into your trivia thing. Oh, no. Do your trivia no, thing. We'll, 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 we'll get there. We'll All get right. there. All you'll, right. you'll be ready to come in right at the end. Okay. This episode, First Contact, was written by everybody. Uh, the story is by Mark Scott Zickery. Now, he was a very enthusiastic Star Trek fan, and he has written for so many TV shows, most of them science fiction and fantasy genre, uh, Babylon 5, Incredible Hulk, The Twilight Zone from 1985, and just so many more, including animated shows, look them up. Most people, though, may know the name from The Twilight Zone Companion, probably the definitive book about the making of the original Twilight Zone. In fact, such a good resource that the uh, the recent really great DVD and Blu-ray releases very often reference that book throughout the, the liner notes and on-screen comments. So that's kind of the, the book to own if you're a Twilight Zone fan. Now, the teleplay is by Ron Moore, Joe Minoski, Michael Piller, plus uh, David Bischoff, who we mentioned as the story creator for the episode Ten Men, and Dennis Russell Bailey, who co-wrote Ten Men as well with uh, David Bischoff. So that's why you've got a little bit of everybody in those opening credits. It's directed by Cliff Bull, who we've talked about before many times. Um, Now, the story here had actually been pitched in season three. It was a pitch that Zickery had done, and it it was kind of among dozens more story ideas. He just kept pitching and pitching and pitching because he had that open-door policy, so he could do that. So it was Michael Piller's idea, though, to let the point of view be the aliens rather than the crew of the Enterprise. So that was one big change that he did that... uh, earned him one of the credits on this. And uh, this is really the first episode of Star Trek to do that, kind of break that format. And it's a device we'll see used again, though very infrequently. Um, In earlier drafts, this would have been Wesley's final mission, so he would have actually stayed behind on the planet, and that's how we write him out of the show. And it could also have been seen as a season-ending cliffhanger had this been written in a slightly different way. Hey, a big shout out to uh, a guest star here. And of course, I mean the matte painting that we first saw in Angel One here uh, standing in for the capital city. (laughs) Nice. And they they had to figure, yeah, use that again because nobody remembers Angel One. Nope. 
No, no. Well, actually, there are two matte paintings, uh, very similar looking, but uh, the original is the one that we see a little later. We see a slightly different painting at the front of the show, but uh, similar style, very similar style. Um, now, I know this is what you've been waiting for. Uh, let's, let's talk about those. I can't those believe styles. you're leading with him, though, really. Can I make oh, a suggestion? Sure. Yeah. Come, he, he's, he's, the, he's the capstone of this whole thing. He's the piece de resistance. Mm-hmm. He, is, he is the guy. I know why you're saying that. Why? Yeah, I, I, well, because he Oh, because he is. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, Max Headroom, but so much more. Okay, well, I guess I was going to say let's leave him to the end, but go ahead. I shouldn't, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't even talk during trivia. I'm so sorry. Well, you see what it is? This is like a concert, Ken, and you have to build, you, you have to start big. Yeah. Then you have, the, you have the well of the show, and then you end big. How are you going to end bigger than him? Oh, oh, uh-huh. I see what you did. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, I would have gone differently, but okay. Chancellor Durkin. Played by George Coe. Yeah. Incredibly well-known actor who was actually in the first season of Saturday Night Live back in 1975. He only made it three episodes as a regular. And then he came back in bit parts uh, very often after that. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a former president of Screen Actors Guild. He was in Kramer versus Kramer. Max Headroom. Ben Cheviot in Max Headroom, head of there Network 23. Yep, yep. So major presence there. Yeah. Uh, L.A. Law, voice actor for many of the Star Wars spinoff projects. Uh, before his death in 2015, he was a regular voice on the show Archer. So Woodhouse. Most recently have heard him. Yes. Yeah, but you wouldn't have recognized him from that because he, he was doing a British accent, kind of. He's doing a voice. I did not realize until he died. And I had watched, I guess, the first four seasons of Archer at that point. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. realize until he passed away that he had been the voice of Woodhouse the whole time. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, then we move along to Carolyn Seymour as Marasta Yale. Now, we mentioned her before. We talked about her career before uh, in the episode Contagion, in which she was playing Romulan sub-commander Terrace. So you can go back and listen to that episode if you need to get more about her bio. We have George Hearn, Broadway actor and uh, actor in many TV shows and movies. Uh, he's the one playing Dr. Burrell here. He was the star of Sweeney Todd on Broadway and an excellent version of which was filmed with him and Angela Lansbury. So if you want to watch Sweeney Todd that is not Johnny Depp, <laughs> that's the Sweeney Todd that you will watch. And he is fantastic in it. Um, I actually saw him on Broadway in the 80s in uh, La Cage aux Folles. And uh, he was fantastic in that as well. Um, but you've seen him in movies uh, and TV, uh, Flags of Our Fathers, Cheers, Murder, She Wrote, The Devil's Own, and Sneakers, to name just a very few. We have Michael Ensign as Krola, very versatile actor who you've seen in Titanic, Boston Legal, MASH. He was the hotel manager in Ghostbusters. We'll go back and see him in that. And uh, he will actually make an appearance in each of the remaining Star Trek spinoff TV series. So, so we will see more of him along the way. I would say that both he and George Coe, you're going to be sitting there the whole episode trying to remember what you've seen them in. With George oh, yeah. Coe, you're oh, going to be yeah, trying yeah. to remember what you haven't seen him in because he, right. is, he is recognizable. <laughs> right. But with Michael right. Anson the whole time, I'm like, I know him. I know him. I mean, he's like one of those actors that you just know you know. And, yeah, and partly it's the glasses, I think, because that, that, that's a look that he has in, in a lot of his episodes. And this is like, even with the alien makeup, you just sort of, you see Michael Inson through that makeup. Yeah. You know? So pretty great. And finally, Ken, we're going to end big. <laughs> you are going to end big. You are. Finally, Vivi Newworth. Yeah. And, and what's not to say about Vivi Newworth? She started her career in the Broadway production of A Chorus Line. Uh, famously, she played Frasier Crane's wife, Lilith, on both Cheers and then later in the show Frasier. Well, ex-wife at that point. <laughs> and after that, uh, appearances on Law & Order, Trial by Jury, Blue Bloods, and more recently, Madam Secretary. She is a Tony Award winner for Sweet Charity, and she picked up two Emmy Awards for playing Lilith on Cheers. Time now for General Hospital in Space. Prologue. We open in a hospital. Somewhere. Definitely not Earth, because the doctors are alien. To us, anyway. Bumpy foreheads, flipper-like hands but they're dedicated professionals, and they are very concerned about their unconscious patient. He kind of looks like them, but the hands aren't like theirs, and the internal organs aren't where they should be. He's like an entirely different species to them. He's Commander Riker. 
Act 1. Now conscious, Riker explains that he is Rivas Jakara, and he was caught in a riot which led to his injuries. The doctors are confused, though, because Rivas' story doesn't really seem to add up, and that bumpy forehead is just cosmetic surgery. Dr. Burrell, one of the aliens, would like some answers, including what that weird little device, kind of like a dustbuster, is supposed to do. Riker says it's a toy for a neighbor child. Outside the examination room, the doctors are worked up. Clearly, this guy is lying about who or what he is, but Dr. Burrell asks him to keep it down. No use getting worked up about their far-fetched idea that their recent space flights have attracted aliens to this world. Cut to a meeting about spaceflight. A driven scientist, Marasta Yale, explains how her new warp-capable craft will head for the stars. Chancellor Durkin is interested but cautious, and Krola, the head of security, well, you can probably see where this is going, is kind of a killjoy. She needs funding to finish the craft, and while Durkin is ready to help, Krola speaks to the opponents, who would rather not jump into a new scientific era. You know, the ones who like the old days with rotary phones and steam-powered mining cars and crank toothbrushes. Rasta Yale is hard at work in her lab, alone, when who should show up but Captain Picard and Deanna Troy? They just beam in like it's nobody's business, and they begin a speech which has definitely been rehearsed. We come in peace, we're from the Federation, we're here to help since you're about to break the warp barrier. You're a scientist, so you'll probably have an easier time swallowing all of this than just about anybody. She's not exactly buying it just yet. She is a scientist after all, and she needs a little more proof. Picard is happy to oblige, and when he calls the Enterprise next, it's for three to beam up. Act 2. Marasta Yale has a pretty great view of her homeworld, Malcor 3, from 10 forward. She's so digging the idea of being in space, on a spaceship, with space people. She remembers how, as a child, she sat in the planetarium dreaming of the stars. Picard and Deanna explain that the Federation has been studying her world, even sending people to the surface for recon. Riker is one of those who were studying the Malkorians, and now he's gone. Yale gets it, but she knows that some of her people would find this a little scary. Durkin would be cool to a point, but please don't tell him about Riker. Krola is another story. Riker is just the bait he would need to go full-on xenophobe and use the threat of alien invasion to suit his own agenda. Back in the hospital, that whole thing about keeping Rivas, a.k.a. Riker, quiet, not going so well. People are talking, texting, tweeting, the whole thing. Dr. Burrell confronts him again, and none of Rivas' story adds up, and the confusion and paranoia is building. You're not an alien, are you? Because if I ask you, you'd have to tell me, right? No, 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 I'm not an alien, that's just crazy talk. In any case, Burrell knows Rivas is hiding something, and that's no good. In Chancellor Durkin's office, a surprise visit by Marasta Yale, and she has a guest. Captain Picard, you know, from outer space. Act three, let's do the grand tour again. Beam up Durkin, walk around the ship. Here's data. There's your planet. Never mind the big guy with the forehead who never smiles. Time to get down to business. Picard pours a glass of the finest from the Picard vineyard in order to toast their new interstellar friendship. Durkin is still cautious, even with the wine in him. He says his planet has a history of conquerors claiming to be friends, but Picard assures him if Durkin tells him to go and never come back, then he'll never see the Enterprise again. Picard hopes that's not the case, though. He and the Federation want to help. But they'll stick with the Prime Directive as well, not sharing technology or interfering with the natural development of the Malkorians. Durkin will need a little time to think about it. Riker, meanwhile, is ready to get out, on his own if he has to. Before he can break a window, a Malkorian woman stops by his room. She's curious about this alien, a little too curious. She's Linnell, a nurse in the hospital, and she's heard the rumors. She'll help him escape, but first she wants something for her trouble. She wants to be the first woman on her planet to experience the full Riker. Prime Directive be damned. Once the deed is done, Linnell points Riker in the right direction to get out, but the escape goes considerably worse than their physical interlude. Riker is stopped by force by a number of guards and orderlies, and this time the injuries are worse than before. Internal bleeding he may die. Act 4. Durkin has a meeting with his advisors, including Marasta and Krola. Of course, Krola is worried that this is all happening too fast, and Durkin assures him that if Picard had malevolent intentions, they would not be standing here now. But Krola doesn't trust them, certainly not when there are spies around. 
like the one who they captured, uh, Marasta pipes up. That's Riker, Picard's first officer. Durkin is a little shaken at the idea that they have spies now, but Marasta assures him he wasn't told of the information lest there be an overreaction. Krola visits Riker in the hospital, demanding that they revive him long enough to be interrogated. A bad idea since Riker is in such bad shape. Marasta begs Krola to allow Riker to return to the Enterprise, but Krola won't hear it. And if the doctor refuses, he will be replaced. Back in Chancellor Durkin's office, Picard beams in, but Durkin now feels like the trust has been broken with the revelation of Riker's identity. Picard tries to reason with Durkin. The subterfuge was only temporary, and believe him, the positive benefits far outweigh the negative reaction. Reports have been coming in that the Malkorians would probably meet the news of visitors with derision. Durkin understands, and he admits that he probably would have acted as Picard did in the same position. He asks for a little more time before he can release Riker. Time is exactly what Riker does not have. Krola has relieved Dr. Burrell, and the new guy is ordered to revive the patient. An injection is given, and the dramatic music swells. Act 5. Durkin confronts Marasta about her decision to withhold information from him, an inexcusable act. He tells her that he will release Riker, but after he's interrogated. Bad move, Marasta says. Krola is using drugs that will likely kill him. The only way to save Riker is with medical attention from the Enterprise. Better hurry, because Krola is already in Riker's face. He knows that he's an alien, and Riker tries to say that they're on a mission of peace. Oh, uh, but what about this weapon that was found on him earlier? Krola says he can't allow Riker to complete his mission. It would mean the end of his way of life and everything he holds dear. To prove a point, he does something drastic. Holding Riker's hand, he points the phaser at his own chest and pulls the trigger. When Krola hits the floor, the doctors enter to find what has happened. Krola is alive, but weak. And just at that time, Dr. Crusher beams in to find Riker near death. Both he and Krola are beamed up to sickbay on the Enterprise, and both will make a recovery. The phaser, incidentally, was set to stun. And it's apparent that Krola was trying to martyr himself since Riker was in no condition to fight over the weapon. It's actually a kind of personal moment when Durkin realizes what Krola was trying to do. In Picard's ready room, Durkin breaks the news. His people aren't ready. They have to slow down and work out the present until they can embrace the future. Going by his word, Picard says that he will leave, and he hopes they will be able to meet him again one day. Rasta has plans of her own, though. She wants to stay, not at home, but on board the Enterprise. Picard warns her that they may not come back to Malkor III in her lifetime. What about the work she does, the people she knows? She may not be prepared. She reminds the captain that she has been ready since she was nine years old, sitting in the planetarium and looking at the stars. The end. Probably the truest thing that happens in this episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want to introduce her to the wide wonders of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. Take her to a bar. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) First thing you do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe they had gone to the bridge, but yeah, you know, I mean, if she's open to the whole idea of Tons of people, tons of different kinds of people. Actually, Ten Ford is the smart place to go. It is, yeah. Because on the bridge, you're only going to have one Klingon and one android. Mm-hmm. And then you have a Beta Z, but, you know, she looks like a human. Yeah. So that's not really going to, like, shake her the way that uh, you're going into Ten Ford. Hey, there's the blue barber you, sitting you, right you there. And, you got a bullion in the bar. Yeah, there you go. You got a bullion in the bar. It sounds like a joke. Yep. <laughs> right. Uh, hey, 29 hours a day. Yeah, I love all all the differences. They did a really good job of showing that everything was alien without, you know, doing the whole, well, this is weird. I mean, I guess the doctors are kind of doing that, but like the little differences, like the cardio rhythm is in his digestive tract and he has digits on his terminus and, you know, and the fingers. And yeah, the whole, I mean, they're not saying, they don't make a point of it. He's just like, I want to watch kept on his room 29 hours a day. That's awesome. (laughs) I thought that yeah. was just a, just a fantastic uh, just a fantastic little thing there. Well, they did a lot of that, a, a lot of little details like that. In fact, uh, like the model of the warp ship, mm-hmm. uh, I like that it's vaguely reminiscent of the Discovery from 2001, and mm. uh, that was a creation of uh, Rick Sternbach and Mike Okuda and the the guys in the art department, kind of pulling that together. So you had the ship in the background, the little model, and then the schematics on on the computer. Um, but I love how all the alien tech 
looks like the 1980s. <laughs> I mean, you know, Next Gen does a pretty good job of making the future look plausibly futuristic, with a few exceptions, of course, you know. Uh, but the Malkorians have big, bulky CRT monitors, mm-hmm. and they have pretty ugly graphics. Yeah, they do. You know, um, the doors don't swoosh open. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a little things like that where it's sort of here are aliens who are a little more advanced than the equivalent of us in the 80s. You know, they're, they're advanced enough that they're developing something like warp drive, but they haven't quite gotten beyond, you know, they, they're certainly not as advanced as the Vulcans or anybody else. It's really cool. I, yeah. I really love those little details. It is strange, though, because, I mean, obviously the, the crew of the Enterprise is supposed to be a stand-in for us a lot of times, right? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. our late 80s, early 90s selves. And so then we're being presented with these people who aren't that far behind us, except mm-hmm. we're supposed to be the people in the Enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. so, but, it was, but it's not poorly done. I mean, there was actually – I was a little confused initially when they're wheeling him into – the recovery room and it's very obvious that they're actually wheeling you know mm-hmm. as opposed to like mm-hmm. maglev or you know whatever right and uh or, yeah or it's just because, beaming him in there or yeah. just beaming him in or whatever right and that's because you know well it's the wheel of course it's that, that's how they're doing it yeah. because that's about where they are except for the part where they're about to uh where they're about to come up with warp technology uh, there was one other thing that i loved as far as like you know showing the differences i think mm-hmm. i love how alien picard and troy look to them and I oh, think this yeah, is really yeah. largely, well, Picard mostly. When when Co sees Picard mm-hmm. and looks at him, you know, like he's got bumps on his forehead <laughs> or, yeah, or right. gray skin and big, you know, bug eyes or something like that, um, it, it, the, the, the differences are really conveyed not so much because, I mean, they're still Star Trek aliens. Yes, there's something on their hands. Yes, there's something on their forehead. But they still look like humans. Yeah. Um, but the difference is really conveyed, I think, in George Co uh, standing there looking the way he does. And perfect English. Fortunately, we all share that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yet they can't read it. It's like the things on the door were like, uh, yeah. oh, well. Like, no, that says door. <laughs> it just says <laughs> door. Um, I know that there are so many great lines in this, um, and, and we'll we'll get to some of that the further along we go in the show. But um, the, there was uh, a line in here spoken uh, by the Malkorians, I will not let them stay in the Dark Ages, and that was Chancellor Durkin, Shades of Who Watches the Watchers. That was sort of a Picard line from Who Watches the Watchers. So I thought hmm. there was a nice little... Uh, um, sort of a parallel between the kind of person that Durkin is and the kind of person that Picard is. Yeah. Um, so some uh, some really nice stuff there. Um, it was great to see a prop return. Not just a prop, though. A really an important mm-hmm. thing. When Rene gave Picard the bottle of wine when he left, and you mentioned this in the recap, um, yeah. he said, yeah, please uh, try not to drink it alone. Yes. And, yes. and you know, I yeah. think probably what Renee was hoping was, you know, like a dear friend or, a, a, you know, a, a lady friend or something like that. Picard but has but none I, of I love the fact that when Picard <laughs> does break it out, though, it's like, oh, by the way, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're changing your entire way of life. Have a drink with me, won't you? Which is kind of a neat yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Um, well, and something important to Picard. That, that's really, it, it was played in a sophisticated and honest way. And it's a really good thing that we know from medical fact that earth alcohol doesn't kill an alcoholic. <laughs> you see, that was the one when he gave him the drink. I was like, oh, let's hope yeah. this goes well. And of course, I know the kind of episode it's going to be at that point. So obviously yeah. it's going to. But I did think if this were like a, I don't know, an M. Night Shyamalan movie or, <laughs> right, or, right, or a J.J. Right. Abrams movie or something like that. Yeah. Oh, things are going so fantastic. And they would take a sip. And then that's like an interstellar war right there. And even worse, it could have been like Dr. Crusher saying like, oh, no, 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 the, the Malkorians are fine. They can drink wine. I, I give you the go-ahead to do that. Oh, but this guy's allergic. Oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> instant death if he drinks alcohol. For or her. maybe Renee wasn't being nice. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here, drink this. Exactly. I poisoned it. Yes, but yeah. do me a favor. Be sure there's somebody else there with you to drink it too. Right. Because right. I, I want you and everybody else to suffer. Yeah, to, to hide the witnesses. No, Rene. <laughs> yeah. uh, Picard does say to uh, Durkin that the decision to do surveillance was controversial. And, and he still admits that it's not a perfect solution. And I kind of like the idea that still in the 24th century, there are people grappling with the ethics of their decisions. Because it, it feels like for a long time in Next Gen, 
that, that the rules are kind of the rules and they're all agreed upon and they all go with them and that's how life is. But for Picard to admit, you know, it was a different thing in the original series when we were talking about Kirk kind of developing the prime directive right. uh, and talking about uh, when they came back in uh, Private Little War, how this was something that he had been working on for years and years and years, collaborating with people in the Federation to do that. And it feels like, OK, well, here we are 80 plus years later and everything is sort of better and we all agree on everything. But it, it's just a little mention. So I, I figured I'd throw it into this section of the show. Just a little offhanded mention, but I like the idea of all of these things still being grappled with and all of these things sort of still being up for debate, hmm. even in even in that world, even that enlightened world of the 24th century. Yeah. And there was uh, sort of tied to that. There was the whole thing with. Um, there was the whole thing with yeah, what. So so Durkin finds out then that Riker has been there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Picard's like, yeah, sorry, probably should have told you. Uh, we yeah. were advised not to. Marasta said maybe that wouldn't be the best idea. Thinking back on it, it was a mistake. And Durkin says, "Well, you know, that actually makes me feel better that you <laughs> that you make mistakes because look yeah. at you, you're yeah. so much more advanced than we are. And guess what? You can goof too. And that actually makes him uh, trust him a bit more. It's yeah. sort, of, sort of, I mean, just a bit of an extrapolation from what you were talking about. I think that's actually in the same conversation. Um, and it was kind of neat to see. I mean that." Again, if 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 the Mal- Malkorians are going to be the stand-in for us this mm-hmm. week, then yeah, we get to feel better about. Oh, they seem so perfect, and it seems like everything is so great now, uh, but they can still goof up just as much as we can. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, everybody's human. <laughs> you might as well, <laughs> well except for the Malkorians, but you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but hey, they but are even. But even Spock, even Spock, everybody's human. Um, <laughs> at the end there when uh Durkin is leaving the uh, the ready room and he says like uh, you know we'll 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 say that uh the people are mistaken and we'll say that there is this might might as well say it was a weather balloon well, no he didn't <laughs> say know? that that was actually the thing that happened with the doctor early on well, the, no, no, but the doctor it, said people are are spotting these things and they turn out to be weather balloons and Riker says to him it's more likely that I'm a weather balloon than an alien even though oh, he no, is. No. I, I remember that, but I, I mean at the very end. He, he doesn't say weather balloon at the very end. Right. But, but as as Durkin is leaving the ready room, he he, he basically says, it will pass. Yeah. And he's, he's giving this nod to like, eh, it'll just be a government conspiracy about aliens. Again, <laughs> like a little nod to us, <laughs> you know. And yeah. by, us, by us, I don't mean me and you. I mean us, meaning oh, the idea oh, no. that we think that... Uh, Please that, go ahead and say us. So, so 1988, 89, I think, uh-huh. I am at a speech. This is pre-X-Files, right? So okay. we're, we're between Close Encounters and X-Files at this point. Okay. And, and there was a guy who had been a, um, a civilian consultant with the Air Force. And he believed that that we had actually had spaceships here on earth before and and the thing is most of the crowd like some of the crowd were kind of skeptical some of the crowd were definitely fox molders they wanted to believe right mm-hmm. and listening to the guy talk i mean he held up a few things he's like well that's interesting that's interesting and then somebody asked him if he thought that aliens had been here and he he obviously did not want to say it yeah, but then he said that he believed that we had actually traded a couple of people for a couple of aliens, and they were on some North North uh, Pacific Northwest Air Force base, something or other. And he lost the crowd entirely. <laughs> it was amazing because we, everybody yeah. there was like ready to go, like up to this one line with him. But then once he crossed right. that line, it's like, and so it's like, okay, well, a minute ago you believed in aliens flying spaceships, but you don't yeah. think they could be here? What? I don't. Anyway, uh, sorry. Believe is a powerful thing, or an un- the evidence, or an unwillingness. <laughs> well, no, I understand that. It's weird yeah. though that, that that people are like, "Oh, sure, I'll sure. go ninety nine percent of the way with you," but you cross that one percent and then say, oh, no, right. you're high." You're like, they're in the northwest. No, they're in the <laughs> south because <laughs> that's where they all land. Person. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Marasta actually gets to stay. Hmm. How many times does it seem like this would be the best possible outcome? For anybody, and finally it happens, and and it's again it's her being that stand-in for us, for the open-minded, progressive-thinking Star Trek viewer who mm-hmm. really would have it better off in this more enlightened world. It's, it's a great moment for every time that we thought, man, Kirk 
should have just brought the girl with the green hair on the Enterprise and gotten her out of that hellhole. Yeah. <laughs> gotten her out of Triskelion. No, finally that happens. Here. Yeah, she is uh, She's Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. Yep. At the very end yep. of it, she gets to get on the ship and go away. I actually, I like the... Um, the part where they were like, oh, so we do all these different things before they say we've got spies on your planet. Yeah. You know, but like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we try to learn as much as we can. We, we monitor your broadcasts. And she says, oh, I hate to think how you would judge us based on our popular music and entertainment. And Picard says, indeed. And I just wanted him to go, your Real Housewives of Capital City show is just awful. <laughs> The clicking noise you hear throughout this episode was Ken fidgeting with a paper clip on his desk. Do not worry. He has been roundly chastised. So there was a thing that confused me in this episode. Um, Marasta says that the Malkorian belief system is that they're supreme beings and that their world is at the center of the universe. Now, mm-hmm. when she says the center of the universe, I mean, this is sort of like all roads lead to Rome, right? Mm-hmm. Or like how China is called the Middle Kingdom, because they were under the impression that everything led to China at one point. It was in mm-hmm. the middle of everything. They don't actually think that Melkor is at the center of uh, the universe. First of all, because she goes to a planetarium. And second, because their planet is called Melkor 3. Right. Unless they just have a thing for the number three. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, that, that's interesting because, you know, like Earth being the third planet from mm-hmm. our sun, you, you could actually call it like, say, Saul 3. That's true. You could. So you think so you think the star is actually called Malkor? Yeah, it could be. It would be the Why core. Not? Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. So Malkor 3. My point, though, is they don't actually think, I mean, this is not like the Pope versus Galileo. They don't think that the Earth is actually the center of the universe. Or, I'm sorry, not the Earth, Malkor. Yeah. They don't think Malkor is the center of the universe. They just philosophically... They believe it's uh, that's what it is. Well, you know, it could physically be because uh, technically, wherever you are, you're the you're the center of it all. That's true. You know, I mean, it's not true, but it's true. It is true to yeah. an extent, right? right. You know, we, we the the Milky Way may not be the center. Uh, well, it definitely is not the center. But <laughs> from our perspective, well, all measurements come out from here at right. this point. Right. So, What's yeah. Earth's designation in Star Trek? It's zero zero zero, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is where it begins. Right. Never mind so the fact is... that the Vulcans already had warp before we did. <laughs> right. This yeah. is zero, zero, zero. Yeah. But, but no, you, you're right. It, it is a, a philosophical point of view. And, and that's, you know, this episode is doing what we always say that Star Trek does. And, and that's putting humans right in that alien role to hold a mirror up to ourselves. Marasta is all of our good intentions and all of our curiosity and wonder. Mm-hmm. And it, it, like I said before, she is the stand-in for that enlightened Star Trek audience member. The one who says, ah, it, it could be so much better if we just weren't this. <laughs> if, we, if we didn't greet opportunity and advancement with uh, confusion and paranoia and, and questioning. Um, that line, because I, I wrote it down too, Malkorians are a supreme life form. Well, she's saying this is their ideology. Malkorians are a supreme life form, and our world is the center of the universe. And I thought, yeah, well, that, that sounds familiar. Um, and this is absolutely why I hope that I live to see the day that we confirm life somewhere else in the universe. And I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a bacterium or a Vulcan who, mm-hmm. who lands a spaceship in Bozeman, Montana. I, I'm just picking a place. Yeah. Um, that moment changes everything for the better, I hope, although this is a very good episode at pointing out how it may actually bring out the worst of people. Um, it's also a good episode to point out that it may have already happened and you just don't know. <laughs> sure. No, I'm not uh, kidding. Yeah, no, I no, mean, no, no. seriously, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, we may have found that at some point. I mean, constantly in my news feed, there's the whole did, you know, human life start from something on an asteroid that hit the Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are we softening people up for this idea? I mean, do we actually on some level, does somebody somewhere actually know that that is the case? Oh, I and you so. can say, yeah. well, now you're just being paranoid, except watch the rest of this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which we right. will as we go along, of course. But yeah. 
But then Durkin has sort of what I think is the right level of humility and the right the right response to this. Uh, when Durkin says to Picard, this morning I was the leader of the universe as I knew it. Now I'm a voice in a chorus. I'd say it was a good day. So we would hope that everybody on his planet would at least have that same level of humility and the same kind of realization that he gets to. But then there's something that overrides that. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it is just his friendship, because he, he does call at the end Krola his old friend. He kind of looks at him like, oh, you, you silly guy. I love you, but you silly guy, you screwed this up for all of us. Or is it just the realization that Krola is expressing this really big part of the personality of the people of his planet? I wonder if that's – I think you can read it kind of both ways there. But it, it's this unfortunate, it's this sort of sadness that like uh, it was right there, right in the palm of our, our little sucker-covered flipper hands, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And, and such a shame that, that we ruined it for ourselves. Well, you know? except he's doing it. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I mean, so when you say we ruined it for ourselves, no, I don't think so. No. He's doing it. Yeah. He's their leader. He was elected so, to lead. So is he that lacking in confidence of his own people? Yes. I think yeah. so. Or or he's too or he's too head up with his own confidence. I mean, how old is he? We're given to understand that they're about like we are, right? Yeah. So he's what, sixties? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So I don't know what their system of government is like, but he's not going to be leading for that much longer. Does he really think he can pull this whole thing off in the next 10 years or so? Because he's saying that he hopes that he and Picard can actually become friends again. I don't know how he thinks that's going to happen, because as, as, so is the Enterprise just supposed to stay at a safe distance but keep checking in? Is it time for us to come back? No? Okay, we'll <laughs> right, see you later. Right. You're sending us away. I mean, that's actually right. what's happening. I, I, I mean, I watched this episode, and I cannot imagine how things are going to go well for the Melkorians. I mean, there, yeah. there's buzz in the halls of the hospital about hundreds of Rikers, you know, uh, people like him among them. Um, and even with Picard's assurance that all the Federation observers are gone, how long would it take for Krola or Krola's successor to either wonder whether, you know, there are even more of them or use the possibility of more of them to, you know, route out political enemies, thought criminals, undesirables, and you mm-hmm. know, call him an alien. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Feels like it goes sideways in like a huge way. And then where I get disappointed in Durkin is... He gave in to those people. He yeah. gave in to the people who wanted to keep the truth quiet. I mean, this isn't even, you know, this isn't even like a new idea. I mean, this is truth. This is capital T truth. He, Krola, and Marasta have all been <laughs> on the Enterprise, right? Yeah. We are not alone. Yeah. I mean, they know that now for a fact. And, you know, to assume that he's going to be able to guide his people to accepting that truth and that he will, you know, do so unopposed and that he'll live to see it happen it's ridiculously optimistic. I mean, honestly, Krola, it it makes me insane. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting to the end of the show, and I apologize. I didn't mean to. But, I mean, what happens at the end of this episode, I'm sort of like, who who are we arguing for at this point? Mm-hmm. And, and, and who is supposed to be the stand-in for us now? Because it, is that who I am? I am the person who's like, I'm an orderly peeling potatoes down in the basement of that hospital for some reason. And I don't even know that this whole thing is happening. And maybe I am just as enlightened as Marasta. I just don't have a high enough position. And I'd like to go off, you know, to other parts of the galaxy. But because Kroll is there, um, I don't even get to know about this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and there might be a legitimate argument here about how fast is fast enough or too fast for scientific or social progress. But clearly where where you're hitting a block there and and I feel the same thing is who is this guy to decide mm-hmm. you know um what is right for everyone and and sure you can make the argument okay maybe he's elected but he's also hitting uh, like you said the truth with a capital T so you can't exactly suppress that forever. Um, I'm surprised that Picard didn't mention the possibility of another group find, finding Malkor III, even if the Federation leaves and never returns. Yeah, good point that. Klingon, well, Klingons will be okay because they're on our side now, theoretically, although it won't yeah. go as easily for them, I don't think, as it would have if they had nope. just gone along. But yeah, it could be the Romulans, could be the Ferengi. Borg. Could be, well, could be Borg. Yeah, Honestly, though, yeah. if the Borg find them, it doesn't matter whether they're our friends or not. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of, yeah. Hope the Borg the, don't the, find yeah, you. Yeah, the the Borg may not care. Yeah, maybe really. tone down the uh, the transmissions that go out into space. Right, <laughs> right. If right. you want to keep them out of here. 
Yeah. But, it, but it, yeah, just a huge missed opportunity for them, even for their own safety at that point. You yeah. Know, it, it seems a little strange. So then I wonder, are they a little premature with this first contact? So, yes, I understand that the conditions changed because Riker got hurt and right. the, this sort of sped up everything, um, which we also have to wonder, how long was Riker actually there? Well, I think you know? Riker was only there. I mean, it was sort of like what happened in um, Who Watches the Watchers, right? Riker was only mm-hmm. there to make contact with their team. Why they didn't right. do that via subspace, you know, just to the – why Riker had to physically be there? Well, Riker had to physically be there so we could have this episode. Right. right. But, um, but I mean, yeah, it definitely did move things along at a much more rapid so, pace. So uh, after this and after Who Watches the Watchers, do not send Riker to make contact with teams <laughs> anymore. He's not the recon guy. Good point. He's, he's the action guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was interesting. They haven't actually broken the warp barrier yet. Marasta says they're about 10 months away. And I wonder, you know, had they actually built this thing and had they actually gotten into space, is that the time for the Enterprise to show up and and start doing a little more research? Because even if they break the warp barrier, even if they get a little further into space, it's still a long time before they get further and further out. Um, You know, it just seems it seems a little early in the process. But I I do understand, like I said, that things got sped up a bit prematurely because of Riker getting caught. So, again, Riker, don't go on these missions. Yeah. Send somebody else. (laughs) Um, Like you, I love the fact that uh, Marasta wanted to go with Picard. I love the fact Mm -hmm. that uh, Picard let her go. Yes. I think this was actually supposed to be in my other rant earlier. That's the nail in the coffin. (laughs) <laughs> for Melkor 3 yeah. I think because who else is going to be pushing for this now you know what I mean yeah well but then the, the message may be that it's best that they're not pushing for this you know if we were to, to paint anything positive here about Durkin it's that he says alright this money that would have gone for the war program it's got to go to social programs it's got to go to education it's got to go to something else mm-hmm. now I'm not <laughs> going to hold my breath right or how easily he will be able to push through this kind of progressive plan. Right. Because as long as you've got a guy like Krola there, I don't really think it'll go well. Um, but at least he has that idea. Yeah, it's it's too optimistic. Yep. I mean, here's the thing. They've already got the money set aside for the warp program. Mm-hmm. Well, now that money's off the table because our people aren't ready to go to warp. But what we're going to do is we spend all the money that we were going to spend going to warp, convincing people that what we should do is go to warp. Yeah, And then 20 years from now, when all the money to go to warp is spent, and we're trying to allocate funds to go to warp, <laughs> I mean, because you've had another side arguing the whole time. You have to assume that you've had another side arguing the whole time, yeah. you know, along the lines of Krola saying, mm, no, I don't think so. Uh, but we're probably going to end up talking that to death in the next segment. Can I ask a question really quickly? Should we talk about the sex scene? Yeah, well, you, you or the, just did. the yeah. foreplay scene. Do you want to talk yeah. about that? Yeah. I mean, it's wrong. It's extortion. You actually didn't dwell on it as much as I... I mean, you gave her a name, but you didn't say... Riker's about to break out of the hospital, or try to. And mm-hmm. she's like, I can totally get you out of here safely. And he says, yep. okay. And she says, but mm-hmm. we have to do it. Yep. <laughs> and Riker's like, no. And she's like, yeah. And Riker's like, no. And she says, well, yeah. I mean, I, I will grant you, not since James T. Kirk, has there been a man so willing to make this trade... Yeah. All right. You know, injury aside, head injury aside, totally yep. up for it. But I mean, no means no. Right. Yeah. And and we have this sort of I mean, maybe it's just that it's still Star Trek and maybe it's just that he's still the stand in on some level for uh, Kirk um, in a way that and- Captain Picard was not. But I mean, this is I mean, he said no. And she said, well, if you want what you want, I have to have what I want. Yeah. And, and as much as I love B.B. New Earth, and I love B.B. New Earth, <laughs> it made me incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, re- reverse the roles, reverse the sexes, <laughs> and this is a horrible, horrible scene. Exactly. Well, I, you know, And what I'm arguing is it's a horrible, horrible scene. Yeah, I, I mean, it, you try to put yourself into the minds of the writers, and, and they, they say, okay, well, here's something that's kind of funny, and it, it breaks the flow of what we've had in this episode so far. And right. we give Riker this kind of funny moment, and, and we, we give him another sex scene because that's where we put Riker when we don't know what to do with him. Yeah. Just give him a sex scene. And clearly the actors are having fun with this scene. Yes. But 
but the way it plays out, I, there might have been another way to write this. There might have been. A, you think? A, a, yeah. Well, <laughs> a, a way that is less exploitative. You know, I, I, I don't quite know what to make of it. Um, because you watch it and in the context of the show you go like oh okay well that's funny but you stop and think about it for more than 10 seconds and you just think wow this is um, uh, even if we're giving Riker a very long leash to do whatever he wants and express himself however he wants and and, uh, he and Deanna are just just friends (laughs) put it in quotes and he has agency over his sexuality and his body he can do whatever he wants fine yeah but the context of this him being somebody who is captured who is a prisoner yeah and is bartering with uh you know you actually said it perfectly he has agency over his sexuality except no he doesn't yeah in this yeah. scene he actually does not, not. in this yeah. scene if he wants to be free he's gonna have to put out yeah and that's you know i mean yeah kirk would have done it with a wink and a nod Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, I think, honestly, where this becomes an issue is Riker said no. Yeah. If, if Riker had said, I'm short on time <laughs> you know, or just anything else, but Riker said no, then she's yeah. like, well, that's just not going to work for me. And then I'm he's gonna, like, well, okay. I'm, I'm going to fix this for you. Okay. We know nothing about Malkorian physiology or mm-hmm. sexuality. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Riker could have literally just said, like, well, on on my planet, uh, this is what we do. And he could have, like, shaken her hand and kissed her forehead and said, like, hey, I'm out of here. Are Thanks you kidding me? Time. Again? Yeah. We've already done it twice since you came in. <laughs> Wait, that is it? The Enterprise is leaving? Seriously? Ken, the end of the first first contact. Wait, is there another first contact? I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see. I hear rumor. Well, (laughs) the end of this first contact, anyway, we get to ask if the episode holds up, does it stand the test of time? So, Ken, you tell me, does this episode hold up? You're asking that from a production standpoint, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Production, story, entertainment. Well, okay, then yes. Mm-hmm. I would say that all of those things do hold up. Yes, I mean the 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 alien makeup was fine. I mean it's standard Star Trek makeup at this point. I like mm-hmm. the difference in the hands. I like the fact that we didn't have to see the feet for them to tell us how different the feet were. <laughs> I like the fact that I mean it, it, the acting is is amazing in this episode. I love George Coe. Yeah, I loved him as Ben Cheviot. As I say, totally forgot about him on uh, Saturday Night Live, but now I have to go back and find those episodes. Sure. Um, everybody who turns up, I mean, everybody who shows up really shows up. This is just a really, I think, a great episode as far as uh, all that stuff goes. Yes, some of the props look dated, but they're supposed to. Yeah. They're supposed to look a few years behind where we were as we were watching this for the first time in 1990 or 91. 91, I think. 91, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, I think all of those parts of it, yes, this episode holds up from a production standpoint and from... Where I get a little confused is where you say the story standpoint, but let's say from a writing standpoint, uh, messages, morals, and meanings not included. Okay. What about yeah. you? I, I think the writing is very good. I think the acting is very good. Um, I, I like that we step outside of the normal Star Trek format mm-hmm. for this. I think it's a really clever and bold thing to do, um, to tell the story from somebody else's point of view. And and again, it is a little bit of that kind of Star Trek watcher wish fulfillment thing where you put yourself in the position of these people who are being visited by these outsiders who who are better than us in many ways um and and hopefully learn from them so there's a lot going on here that's good and it is designed well and even if that scene the seduction scene (laughs) is Mm -hmm. certainly questionable Mm -hmm. um even in that, because it's B.B. Newworth and because it's Freaks having fun, the, there is a fun aspect within that to, to sort of break the, the seriousness and the severity of everything else that's going on. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely put it up there. I think it's really enjoyable. And I really like Marasta's arc mm-hmm. through this story. Um, I, I think she's very relatable to 
a lot of well certainly a lot of star trek fans who say man you know i i i enjoy the stories and the idea of space what if it were real what if this this thing was actually real and i could sort of you know bypass the drudgery and actually get there and actually get to that point where i'm a part of that world so there's a big part of her that's really appealing and she gets to do it and she gets to now the worst part about it may be that in a few years, as you described, what happens, okay, all that money goes away from the work program and it goes to education. And then some investigative reporter says, oh, who is that scientist that was working on all of this? Um, and we took away her <laughs> livelihood by taking away the, oh, what, what, what happened to her? I uh, just don't, don't worry it's, about that. Krola's yeah. secret police actually disappeared her. Uh, right. That's how that story goes yeah. as well, by the way. It's not just right. about the aliens who came. It's also about the people who were silenced. Because they wouldn't be silenced. <laughs> but I think this is a story that holds up. And we will talk about the morals, meanings, messages separately. But I think it's a story that holds up because so much of it is relatable. Mm-hmm. And, and so many, you know, these characters may be archetypes, but be, they're archetypes because they work. Because you can recognize, you know, whether it was a, a, a political idea in 1991 when this aired or now you can kind of fit these types where they belong today. So um, I, I think it works marvelously well. Um, I, I, I don't know. You know, we, we don't rank things on this show. We don't say, oh, it's my top 10 or whatever. But it, it, it's up there. I, I think it's an important uh, story for Star Trek to tell. But let's talk about messages. Okay. Um, how do <laughs> How do we feel about the messages, morals, meanings? There are a couple that I picked out. Mm-hmm. And I, I want you to wrap it up. Um, you know, we've had this a, a few times before where it's three cheers for science and scientists. Mm-hmm. The scientists are the good guys here. The scientists are the ones who are making the right decisions, or at least trying to make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, it's nice to see that as a positive thing on popular TV, popular entertainment. You don't always see that anymore, you know. Yeah. This wasn't the good old days. This was 1991. <laughs> Not that that long ago. Um, and there might be a thing here about assuming positive intent. You know, I see Krola as, if I saw Marasta as the best of us, mm-hmm. I see Krola as the worst of us. His suspicions are his undoing. And, and his suspicions, his paranoia will have horrible repercussions for the people around him. He is single-handedly, and then with the help of Durkin, because Durkin sort of capitulates mm-hmm. to, to Krola, he is the one that will keep their progress back by 10 years, 20 years, who knows how long. Right. And how much do you wind that clock back? You know, even if it's the good intention of saying, like, well, maybe we just need to slow down where we are right now. Just slow down a little to stop and smell the roses. Uh, okay, fine. But how much are you really winding back the clock when you do that? You know, uh, Krola, Krola has this idea in his mind of how the world needs to be. And sadly, he gets Durkin to capitulate yeah. and go along with that. that. That's really the unfortunate part here because – Krola might have good intentions, but his paranoia, his suspicion, all of this is what's undoing yeah. the potential for his people. Krola's, Krola's intentions are not good. No. Krola actually says to Riker, once news of you gets out, it will change our way of life, and that can't happen, or I can't yeah. let that happen. He's also not on board. I don't, I don't care what Durkin thinks he's going to accomplish. He's not going to. Um, Krola said, I have warned you about your policies, taking us too quickly in directions we never should have gone in the first place. New technologies, new philosophies, new economics. And there are still many people who value our traditional way of life, and I, for one, am willing to die to defend it. Uh, okay, so there's, there's, there's your money. There's, there's where your money's going to go now, is trying to convince this guy, who has been on their ship, who has had their life saved, who has met the aliens. This is, this is not an minds campaign. This is this guy... This guy is standing in the way of, 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 of progress. Um, years. Imagine what they have done. Influenced our young. Stirred up dissent. This is what he's afraid has been going on the whole time. Well, if he's been parenting or if he's been leading the society, he probably knows that that's not exactly happening. And, and I, I will get, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with Picard. Yes, that is a dicey thing that they have done there. 
And if people find out that they've been on the planet, then yes, they're going to be worried about people exerting a certain amount of control as well, except, again, he's met them, he's been on the planet, he has a, I mean, unless he thinks that that's how Durkin got elected, but if that's how yeah. Durkin got elected, then why is Krola his right-hand man? It seems to me that, you know, Marasta would be both, you know, chief scientist and also chief peacenik. Um, <laughs> here's, here's the problem that I have, and I couldn't help thinking about this, and, you know, what is it, what's our email address? <laughs> mission log at roddenberry.com mission log at roddenberry.com we know from leaks and reporting that exxon knew about the links between fossil fuels and global warming as early as 1981 we know this from emails that were sent inside of exxon and rather than work towards a brighter tomorrow they protected the bottom line they funded climate change denial there was a truth that started to be accepted and that truth was shut down uh, to the point that people won't call it a truth anymore and I don't see how shutting out the outsiders does anything but bolster the control of the xenophobes in this episode. And so I can't help. I mean, so that's why I asked you very carefully. What are you asking me? What holds up? Are you asking me if it's a production that holds up? Or are you asking me if it's the messages? Because this is a great episode that for me is undone by the end of it. I still enjoy mm -hmm. watching this episode, but I want it mm -hmm. to end differently. And so the messages in this episode do not hold up at all. I don't, I don't, the, the, the message in this episode does not hold up for one second. I love the fact that Marasta gets to get out. That's fantastic. And I'm sad for everybody else on their planet. And, and I hate the fact that their leader, the guy who was elected, and we know there's an opposition party. He actually talks about them in the beginning. The guy who's elected, who knows the truth, doesn't have the will to say, look, you guys elected me for a reason, so let me tell you something. I mean, he's not marching them to war. He's not, you know, telling them to drink Kool-Aid. He's saying, hey, guess what? We found out this thing, and it's going to change a lot of stuff, but we're, we're, we're these people. We're strong people. I'm your leader. This is going to be fine. Maybe you don't tell everybody it's going to be fantastic, because maybe it's not going to be fantastic. It's going to throw stuff into upheaval, but what he's doing is going along to get along. What he's doing is keeping power. What he's doing is keeping order. This goes back to what happened with the Klingons. Where, where they, 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 they pride themselves on honor. There's no honor anymore, so now all they're doing is keeping peace. And that's all he's doing in this point. He's just keeping peace. And he's got this idea that he's going to be able to move them towards something greater. But the thing that's greater is about to go warp nine away from their planet. And the person <laughs> who could also take them warp nine away from their planet is going with them. Yeah. Well, uh, but here's the thing. I mean, that, that's why I think this holds up from a message point of view as well as the production point of view because again this is star trek say it's not ripped from the headlines but it but at least it's it's ripped from kind of the 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 zeitgeist you know how, how we see ourselves in the 20th century in the early 21st century is to say don't be these people you know this is how you govern a people wrong this is how you stamp out progress and this is how you lie to maintain the status quo that isn't worth keeping as status quo. See, I think the Klingon version said that, though. I don't think this episode says that. I think this episode is all about making sure that everything's okay for everybody, as opposed to being better for everybody. Well, but no, but I think we're supposed to not feel that things are better for the people on that planet, on Malkor 3. Then I wish I knew that they were going to die. I mean, <laughs> I, I hate to sound stupid about it, but I mean, I, uh, wish, I wish there was something that they had chosen instead. Right. Mm, mm -hmm. Like we know that our sun's going to explode, but but our people would rather die believing that they're the supreme beings mm -hmm. and that they're going to die rather than finding out that they're, you know, a tiny fish in a much bigger pond. Do you know what I mean? I mm -hmm. wish they were choosing. I wish they were choosing what they saw as the lesser of two evils that was, in fact, more because what we're given to understand at the end is they're going to go on being a peaceful society and it's going to be fine. And the only thing that's going to suffer is progress. The only thing that's going to suffer is truth. The only thing that's going to suffer is people who aren't necessarily being served by this status quo. Yeah, but everybody in the Enterprise can sail away going, wow, that's pretty sad. They don't have the chance to be better than who they are. <laughs> do, you think, do you think they'll uh, be talking about it with Marasta next week? Absolutely. Really? Will. Do you think that'll yeah. be like the whole episode next week? Because Marasta, I'm assuming, you know, she has quarters on the Enterprise now. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. assuming we're going to see her again and again and again. All the time. <laughs> We're going to get sick of her. It's going to be so much Marasta. It's practically the Marasta show at this point. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
<laughs> Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at Roddenberry.com where you will find a link to everything that Roddenberry does from the shop to original uh, comic books and graphic novels to where the Roddenberry team will be at upcoming conventions. All kinds of stuff at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com next week galaxy's child some of the music for mission log provided by warp 11 online at warp11.com and from the album messages by key theory free to download at kitheory.com I will miss the Malkorians. Maybe we will see them again on Star Trek, the generation after the next generation. Or the one after that. If they are ready. And transmission. <laughs>